Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. My name is Bruce Johnson. I am joined, as always, by my brother, Jacob Johnson. Hello. He's back in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm in the wonderful state of South Dakota, and um, we are joining you today from wherever you are. So, you know, I started this on Monday, and I think it's a cool idea just to get some more audience participation. I'd actually really <laughs> love to hear from our listeners uh, where they're from. Wouldn't you like to hear that too, Jake? I think that oh, yeah, would just be so cool to hear. Um, send us an email at uh, trdshow at protonmail.com and um, tell us where you're from. We'd love to know. Also, check out our show website, trdshow.net. All sorts of cool stuff on there. Sign up for our newsletter, trdshow.net slash newsletter. Do all the things. And uh, yeah, under a minute with that introduction. I think we're getting the hang of this. It only took a year. But I'm getting the hang of this. Hmm. All right. <laughs> we are discussing, it is Literature Wednesday. We are discussing our brand new book this month, our second week with this book. And so, obviously, we read chapter two of it, uh, Mother Kirk Essays on Church Life by Douglas Wilson. And so, you can see that right here on my shelf. Jake, I think, has it on his. He does right there. Look at that. It's so nice. Such a nice cover. It's, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. really cool. So, uh, if you haven't bought the book already, go to our Gab uh gab account gab page i don't know what they call it gab channel it's not a channel gab page do that uh gab.com slash trd show gab.com slash trd show and uh that's where you'll find a link to be able to actually purchase this book for yourself highly highly recommended if you don't have it on your bookshelf already do it do it today and if uh for some reason you can't find the link you know, send us an email and we'll definitely send it your way because this is one book you definitely want to have on your shelf. All right, so we're discussing that today. We got all sorts of cool stuff to talk about. We're going to be defining what we mean by the term reformed evangelicals. We are the reformed dissenters. So this actually plays in really well because now, in case you were wondering, what the heck does that, that what is that, what is that second word there? You know, unless we're counting the, that's, it's the second <laughs> word. Uh, what does reformed mean? Like, why are these guys According to those? libraries, it's the first word. Right, right, right. Yeah, so what is the first word here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that reformed mean? What do we mean by that? We're going to be getting into that today. There's all sorts of stuff to discuss. So it'll be very, very cool to get Douglas Wilson's take on that. All right, but before we get into that, we have to talk about our verse of the week. And I'm going to pass it on over to Jake because it's Wednesday to do that so take it away Alrighty. yeah and i i chose this verse this week and i oh. really like this verse um really in my research for my my for the discussion topic this week which stay tuned for that episode which yeah. should be coming out friday but for our discussion topic this week um i found this verse and i was like wow this really fits in with our current culture i really i think it's a good verse for us to look at but um, and this verse is Titus one verses fifteen through sixteen, and it says, "To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled." Uh, and then verse sixteen says, "They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work." And again, that is Titus 1, verses 15 through 16. And for my explanation of this, I, I really, 
I focus on multiple different parts of this. First of all, I think verse 15 here, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. It's, it's talking about the differences between the pure and the defiled slash unbelieving. So the pure are the Christians of that age, and the defiled and unbelieving are the unbelievers or atheists of that age. Mm. And and but both are are saying that both the Christians and the unbelieving's consciences and minds are defiled. Mm. Both of them. Both of them their minds are defiled. And and then we move on understanding that we move on to verse sixteen and it says they profess to know God. But they deny him in his work in their works. So saying that not only should we profess God in word, but we should profess God in deed mm. and in our works, in what we do. Yeah. Our our fruit. We should be bearing fruit. Right? And it's not that we are saved by our fruit, but that we are known by our fruit. Our fruit shows that we are Christians and that we are saved. Yes. If we are not bearing fruit, there is no way for us to know if we are saved or not. Um, because without our fruit, we will not know if God is working in our hearts, changing our hearts. But, but it's saying that overall, both the Christians and the unbelievers, they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They are the rocks <laughs> and the stones. Hmm. So that's that's my whole explanation of what this is. And really, it, it shows a great comparison to today. That That is what this day, day and age, both the Christians and the non-Christians act the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Dude. Well, thanks for uh, calling out this verse and uh, bringing it up. Yeah, this is, a, this is a really good one. Really good one. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's move into our discussion of uh, Mother Kirk, Essays on Church Life by Doug Wilson, uh, chapter two. And like I said, the purpose of this chapter is to define reformed evangelicals. What do we mean by that fancy term? On page 37, I'll start it out right out with a quote on page 37. He said, uh, what are reformed evangelicals? We approach the subject reluctantly because labels are always dangerous. Still... We live at a time when corruptions in the modern evangelical church are rampant, and consequently, certain key distinctions must be made and made carefully, end quote. So this, I thought, was a really good point that he makes here, is that labels are, are dangerous, right? They're always dangerous things. Um, when we had our interview with Gary DeMar back in April, he was discussing the same sort of thing and, and talking about how labels are dangerous things because people can define things differently. So, um, you know, you call yourself uh, whatever, a theonomist, a post-millennialist, or whatever you call yourself, people will define that differently, and people have positive and negative connotations attached to that, right? So we need to be very careful about the terms we use and, and the labels that we use, and it oftentimes is easier to just not use labels, or if you're going to use them, make sure you define them. And if you hear someone else using them, make sure you ask them to define them. So that's exactly what we're uh, attempting to to do here today is define the term reformed evangelical. So page 38, 
Uh, Doug Wilson said, over the course of the last century, we believe evangelicals have lost their previous orientation to historic Protestant uh, orthodoxy, an orientation which must be recovered if evangelical, evangelicals, he puts in quotes, are to remain Christians. I'll repeat that. Um, We've lost, evangelicals have lost their orientation to historic Protestant orthodoxy. And he says, we have to recover that if they're to remain Christians, if evangelicals are to remain Christians. Consequently, as evangelicals, we desire to see a reforming zeal return to our churches. An essential part of such a reformation requires a return to a rigorous doctrinal integrity, end quote. So we need standards. We need to examine the past, examine where we got off track, and work to get back to that so we can continue growing and working Mm. for the kingdom. This is what happened with the Catholic Church and the Reformation that had to happen there. For a while, it was going well. And then they started to introduce all sorts of ridiculous heresies. A couple centuries later, the Reformation happens and they have to reboot it. They have to get back to where they were before. They have to get back to the historical doctrines that existed before. All right, now they're back on the right track. We get through time and and this happens multiple times. We have to, oh shoot, we're veering off track. All right, let's get back on the main road again and constantly coming back to that main road. The important thing here is that we're not creating new doctrines. We're not saying, all right, this is brand new. Let's go, you know, study the word of God. We got this idea. Let's go to here. That's what they did Mm -hmm. to get us to this point, right? That's why evangelicals today are veering so far off the beaten path because they did it on purpose. They said, oh, the beaten path got it wrong. That straight and narrow Mm -hmm. path that we are following, that we're going down, they're wrong and we are right. And it's a very arrogant way of looking at the Bible, but you get all sorts of brand new theologies that now have popped up in the last century and a half, like premillennialism and uh, dispensationalism. And all of these sorts of things have popped up that are not, they're, they're antithetical to scripture because people are coming up with their own brand new things and throwing away the past, which is what our last episode with Doug Wilson's book last Wednesday was all about. We need to go back to that, study the historic church, understand why they were talking about the things they were because that's important so i'll do one more quote jake and then i'll open up the floor sorry i don't mean to hog all of the time <laughs> oh, that's but, fine. Uh, okay <laughs> so on page 37 he said the point is to recall the reader to the ancient biblical faith which as it has fought faithfully uh, down through the ages has acquired many different names as the war progressed Catholics, uh, Waldensians, Waldensians, we'll go with that, Huguenots, Calvinists, Methodists, Puritans. No virtue is found in any given name. But if we are if we are to understand the history of the church, we should seek a name that takes all of the battles into account and which stands in unity with all the brethren, end quote. So I thought that was fascinating. Page 38, he kind of continued this and said, our purpose here is to explain the phrases classical Protestantism and reformed evangelical evangelicalism in some detail and with clarity and hopefully charity as well, end quote. So that's kind of the, the what he's he's getting into here. So he spent a lot of time talking about the importance of sola scriptura. But before I get to that, Jake, was there something that you wanted to add um, kind of about all of that kind of setting this up a little bit. Um, not necessarily. I mean, definitely. I think very confusing to me is is the term evangelical. And I mean, what is that 
entail? What does that encompass? I've, I've heard a lot of people, and again, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to define terms. We're trying to yeah. define what, what we mean by different things. And when I've heard multiple different people talk about evangelicals in two different lights, either it's positive or it's negative. <laughs> and typically, in, um, with, e- typically, there's evangelical attached to another name next to it. So it's either like reformed evangelicals right. or modern evangelicals. Yeah. And so, I, but I, I've, I've always wanted to know what is evangelical mean. And so, I think it's a very broad term. I guess it, it could relate to meaning Christians. Well, kind but, of. So you have the distinction between Catholics and Protestants, right? Split there. Now we're going to go to the Protestant side. We're going to split it even further a little bit. And part of that category is evangelicals. Um, so you can kind of derive like a root word from that is uh, evangelism, right? So they're evangelizing the world uh, is kind of the root of that. But it, it's a very broad f- uh, phrase term to categorize a, a certain group of people. Um, so reformed evangelicals, which we're about to define as we continue here, is just a broad phrase to kind of grab all the reformed uh, groups uh, and put them all into one category. So reformed evangelicals, I would assume, would include like the OPC, the RCUS, the CREC, all those sorts of denominations. I don't know if the SBC, probably parts of the SBC, but I'm not entirely positive on that front. Um, but it those sorts of people grouping them together. So I think yeah. e- I think evangelical not positive on this, don't quote me on this, but I think it leaves out like that charismatic churches and the Methodist and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I think it hones in specifically on people who um, believe that, you know, in Sola Scriptura, they don't believe that Holy Spirit is working in those same ways today. You know, all of that kind of goes into it. We're going to break mm-hmm. that down in a little bit. Does yeah. that kind of help a little bit? It's kind of Certainly, vague. yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, all right. So, so let's get into the, the importance of Sola Scriptura. So page 39, Doug Wilson said, we must affirm the sufficiency of Scripture alone. This sufficiency refers to the sufficiency of Scripture as an ultimate and infallible authority. The Bible teaches us that God has established religious authorities other than Scripture, the church and parents being two obvious examples, but these other authorities are not ultimate and they are not infallible. Ultimacy and infallibility are reserved to Scripture alone. So um, that was an important. I wanted to just pull that in. Um, and I think everybody listening to our show would, would agree with, with those statements. Um, he made two points, you know, sufficiency of Scripture alone. But also there are other authorities other than Scripture. And he mentioned the church and parents. But they're not infallible and they're not ultimate. And we talked about mm. what ultimate authorities mean uh, back when we went through both of, of uh, Greg Bonson's books. So a um, little further down. On I the, think go ahead. I think people in today's age, they would agree with that. If you said that um, if you if you were talking about the infallibility of the scriptures. But I think what we miss is that practical application. We miss what that actually entails, what that actually means for mm. us, and that it yeah. has, that it should be the ultimate standard, right? And it's something that we should always be going back to for truth and for what is right, what is wrong in every area of life. 
Yes, yes, that's a great point. And actually, that plays in really well to my next quote, which is talking about all of Scripture, not just parts of Scripture. Um, because if it is our ultimate authority, we need all of it in order to know how to live our lives the way that God wants us to. Mm-hmm. So great point, Jake. Thank you. Um, later down the page on page 29, I'm sorry, 39, he said, at the same time, we do not hold that a mere portion of scripture is sufficient for the needs of the entire church. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our commitment to the revealed word of God must extend to scripture in its entirety. For example, we must seek to teach the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verse 27. We therefore affirm the continuing authority of all scripture, end quote. Um, so I thought that that was, that was really, really important. Um, so next I, I want to get to the five solas. Um, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of just a, a general way of summing up some key uh, fundamental building blocks of the faith, of the Christian faith, and what the Bible talks about, um, when it talks about our salvation, but it also talks about our Christian walk, and it relates to kind of everything, from kingdom work to our personal lives to just salvation to everything. So the five solas, which Jake actually mentioned a couple of weeks back on the show. Um, on the episode talking about how to find a good church. If, if yes. anybody wants to go back and look at that episode to find out what each of the solas are. There we go. Um you can go back to that episode and try and find a good church. Nice. Where we were talking about what makes a good church. Right. And I'm glad it's backed up here yeah, yeah. <laughs> by, by Doug Wilson yeah. here is that that is something that is important in a church. It must um, it must follow the five solas, yep. right? It must, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Thanks for tying that in too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he's pulling, so I'm pulling this from page 42. He said, a sound understanding of the word evangelical connects it to the five soli of the Reformation. We affirm sola scriptura, solo, uh, soli de gloria, deo gloria, solus Christus, and solemn gratum, and sola fide. So, um, end quote. So that's, you know, scripture alone, uh, for the glory of God alone, uh, by Christ alone, uh, grace alone, and faith alone. Um, no, I'm sorry. What's uh, solum gratum? That's the one that That's I'm... grace alone. Okay, I was right. Okay, thank you. It's, um, <laughs> That's what I thought. But how I said it on the episode before when we were talking about this, when I when I said it on the, um, when I was talking about the solas, I, I said it as sola gratia. So I don't know why it's, I guess it's just differences. I don't know. Yeah. But this is solum gratum. Um, and it's even spelled different. That's yeah, it is funny but um how how it was spelled when i saw it it was uh sola gratia meaning Mm. uh grace alone yeah yeah nice 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 um yeah so the five solas that's one of the key parts of, of a good church next is confessionalism so page 46 he doug wilson said reformed evangelicals are also confessional we do not set aside the great historic confessions of the Christian church. Reformed evangelicals affirm the key doctrines of the Christian faith found in the Apostles' Creed. We confess our faith in the triune God of Scripture, also witnessed at Nicaea, end quote. He went on to list a few other creeds as well, but for the sakeness, sake of time, I shortened it down a little bit. But go to page 46, buy your copy of the book. If you haven't already, pause this right now. Buy your copy of this book and then, uh, you know, Check out page 46 when you get it. 
Um, page 47, he kind of continued this thought, and he said the confessional standard, uh, yeah, the confessional stand of our churches should represent our standard for teaching, and not just our standard for membership. We must have fellowship with as many as the Lord Jesus had fellowship with. The standard uh, to join a church must never be higher than the confessional requirement to be included in Christ's church, end quote. So I thought that that was really interesting, um, what the standard there is for, for church membership. Okay, so we've got two more categories that I want to get to, which is first is the kingdom and our call to work and what a church should be teaching in terms of that, but then also the kingdom and the victory of Christ and how churches should be teaching that as well. But uh, before I this get to that... Be this should be very reminiscent of our past two discussion topic episodes. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, yep. yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, but, you know, before I start getting into those, Jake, is there anything that you would like to, to bring up or tie in any, any of your quotes? Um, sure. I mean, a lot of these quotes that I have are, are very meant for um, a different group of people. Okay. Not necessarily um, uh, a younger audience, but, but people who want to know how a church government is supposed to work. Ooh. So we've, we've touched on multiple different uh, governments, right? We've touched on the individual government, family government, uh, civil government. But this one, it, this book, we're focusing in on what the church government is supposed to be like and what it's supposed to look like. And Doug Wilson on page 50 starts out by saying, Reformed evangelicals are presbyterial and representative in their understanding of ecclesiastical government. And he continues on to say, We do not hold that a church is necessarily absent, if any of, the, of these features of biblical church government are absent, we distinguish the essay, essay of, of church, its being, and that is spelled E-S-S-E, by the way. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, please <laughs> let me know. Um, and continuing on. And the bene essay of a church, <laughs> uh, which is its well-being. Hmm. Um, but... It's, it's, he's talking about that there are two different senses, right? It's the church and its being, and then the church in its well-being. Hmm. But I thought that was very interesting that, that there interesting. are two different distinctions. Hmm. But he continues on on page 50 to say, The central principle of, of sound church government is a practical recognition of the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is managed by stewards um, called by Christ to, to this task, but they must never think the church belongs to them or is in any way owned by them. I, that, that is really great, and, and I certainly think it should be practical, right? Mm. In that we understand that the church is not owned by pastors, and when he says stewards, it's the pastors, the elders, the deacons, all the, the headship of the church, the government of the church, and even, even the congregation itself. But um, it is owned by Christ, and we should recognize the headship of Christ in that church, in the church. It is, it is Christ's church, right? 
Yeah. But um, also on page 50, he says, Christ is the only head of the church, thus excluding all popes, kings, patriarchs, or senior pastors from that position. Hmm. And he, um, he references Ephesians 5.23. Hmm. So wow. I, I think that is really vitally important in, in um, yeah. showing that it's really the importance to understand that the church is Christ's. What yes. is it focused on? What is the reason for it being here? It is for Christ. Yes. Christ alone. That's fantastic. Dude, that's a really great tie-in. And I, I love all the different things you pulled out of out of some of those quotes. That's really, it's really good. Very cool. All right. So we've got six minutes left. I'm going to tr- transition a little bit into two different topics with two different subheadings. The kingdom is the overarching theme, but then our call to work and then the victory of Christ. And so the, the way that I kind of split these up was I went through and this is kind of what we do every week is we read through, we highlight the phrases in the book, the, the quotes that we really like, and then we pull them out and then usually try and group them together under different categories where they fit. So I was seeing some repeated themes throughout this. So that's kind of how I categorized my quotes. Um, and these two seem to, I, I thought they split into these two categories rather well, which was serendipitous because that's actually exactly how we split them up when we did our discussion episode, Jake, which I thought was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, like that's how we did it too. And kind of seems mm-hmm. like maybe, maybe it was because yeah. that was like fresh in my mind and I was biased when I was grouping them together, but I thought right. it fit pretty well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So anyways. No, that's very, that is very interesting. That yeah, yeah. Really cool that. We, we focus on that, that it's those distinct um, sections, our call to work, right, that we, are, that we are called, but then also that we understand that we have victory yes. in that work. That yes. not only does Christ say, you must do this, mm-hmm. but also he says, you will do this. And you will succeed. In yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, yeah, just as a little bit of a, a taste, there's this one quote that I just, I absolutely love. And, um, he says the job is to be done, not attempted. It reminds me of the, mm-hmm. uh, the Yoda quote, you know, do or do not, there is no try, you know, like, right. <laughs> like you, 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 right. you do it or you don't, you know, like, mm-hmm. does Christ have all authority or does he not? Was he lying? Right. Like, how do you take that? Like, really? <laughs> You're going to call Christ a liar. I would, that's very shaky ground right there. I wouldn't do that right. <laughs> if I were you. Um, so, <laughs> um, so page 42, I'll, I'll pull in a quote from Doug Wilson. He said, before Christ ascended into heaven, he gave an evangelistic commission to his church. That commission required that we preach the gospel to every creature in order to bring the nations into a glad submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And we've talked about that verse lots of times on the show. Um, but that's our work. We're called to do that. Page 45, he said, we are to do more than just tell the nations. We are to do more than tell the nations. We are to disciple them, baptizing and teaching obedience. And the job is to be done, not attempted. We do not have the authority to disobey Christ for the sake of an unbelieving systematic theology. End quote. Page 44, another quote. I'll just do these back to back, you know, (laughs) because they're all so good. And it was so hard to just pick just a few of them. Um, 
Doug Wilson said, Christ told us that our job was to lead the nations to faith in him. Consequently, any theology that rejects our duty to do so is therefore on some level an unbelieving and disobedient theology, end quote. Mm. So that right there was like, boom, you know, <laughs> laying down some crazy yep. stuff there. Uh, but our job is to lead the nations to faith in him. Any theology that rejects uh, that, rejects that um, rejects our duty to do so is therefore on some level an unbelieving and disobedient theology. Uh, page 45, he continued, he said, what has Christ told us to do? He's told us to make the Christian faith the faith of the entire earth. We have no authority to transfer the responsibility for accomplishing this back to him. He's given us a task. Wow. He commands us to do it. So we're to do it. <laughs> that's our job. Um, so that's what we're called to do. That's our work for the kingdom. Now let's talk about the victory of Christ. Um, he spent a lot of time, pages 43, 44, uh, 46. He talked a lot about this. So definitely, definitely get the book and check this out because there's so, so much here that we just didn't have time to get to. Great, great stuff here. But uh, starting on page 43, he said, as the gospel is preached throughout the nations, we fully expect that God will bring into salvation a countless multitude that no one can number, Revelation 7, verse 9, and that the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Israel, uh, Israel Isaiah 11, 9. This um, doctrine of the triumph of the gospel encourages uh, and the fact that we need encouraging should be evident. And then he quotes Hebrews 12, 12, which says, wherefore lift up the hands, which hang down and the feeble knees. So, end quote. So we, we did talk a couple weeks ago about needing this encouragement that the Bible calls us to be encouraged. Um, and he's pulling in Hebrews 12, 12, which is calling us to be encouraged as well. And to seek that encouragement, this victory, this message of hope and victory should encourage us and encourage us to continue working for the kingdom. Page 44, Doug Wilson said, when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan, 10 of them were like our modern Christian and fell into the sin of unbelief. They saw that the land was good, but in their sin, they saw only the strength of the enemy. There were giants in the land, and they saw themselves as grasshoppers in comparison. But Joshua and Caleb, troublemakers both, <laughs> saw the word of God and the opportunity for obedient conquest. So that I thought was really important. They didn't shrink back. They were courageous, and they believed that God would do what he said he would do. Um, page 44, he said, another says that, Optimistic eschatology is a point of view, certainly, but that there are various schools of thought on all this. He just happens to belong to the more pessimistic school of thought. But who gave any of us permission to be an eschatological pessimist? Not Jesus Christ. He said that all authority in heaven and on earth was his, and that our job was to disciple the nations. He wasn't giving us something to shoot for. He was giving us something to do, end quote. Mm. And finally, I'll wrap up with a quote from page 46, where he, Doug Wilson said, Our churches must seek to follow the scriptural pattern of setting a solid theological doctrinal foundation, upon which the saints will be extorted, uh, exhorted, sorry, exhorted to build in various practical ways, in their families, businesses, communities, etc. End quote. So he's talking about that comprehensive Christianity we've talked about with Raymond Simmons and, and others, uh, 
we talked about that with uh, Pastor Jonathan Hansen on the show last Friday, but that comprehensive Christianity that encompasses all areas of life is what the kingdom of God is. Well, that's everything for me, and we're already one minute over. So <laughs> anything you want to add, what? Jake? Only one thing, yeah. and I find this very, very interesting and very, very cool. When he brings up the encouraging, the the triumph of the gospel encourages, and I in multiple other um, verses you find of that encouragement that this push to say do not, uh, do not be let down, do not. Uh, a lot of it is can be found in First Peter and Second Peter, encouraging people to stay strong in the faith. Hmm. And my question is, why do we need all of this encouragement if we're just going to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show? Yes, yes. If we're just going to sit in our lawn chair and watch as the world crumbles. <laughs> if we're not supposed to do anything. If we're yeah. not going to be out there being confronted right, with people who hate us. Yes. Who hate God. Yes, yes. Because we're being antagonistic to their worldview, right? Because we're doing something that they don't particularly like. They right. would love it if we just sat in the shadows and did nothing. They would mm. absolutely love that. And they wouldn't be antagonistic towards us if we did that. But the reason yeah. that they're antagonistic is because we're on the offensive. We're going after their worldview. We're taking it down. We're saying, no, that's wrong. Here's absolute truth. Uh, even though you claim there is none, except for you, right. of course. We're going, <laughs> we're going after those gates. Exactly. Yes, the gates of hell will not prevail. Brilliant. Yep. Yep, going after those gates. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Jake, for, for bringing that up. All right. Thank you all so, so much for watching us today. We really appreciate it. TRD Show is the show website. TRDshow.net is the show website. Sorry, I just listed the show itself. TRDshow.net, show website. Send us an email at trdshow at protonmail.com. Sign up for the newsletter. You know where that is. Go to our website. You'll find the newsletter link there. And uh, we're really looking forward to seeing you on Friday. You don't want to miss this episode on Friday. We're talking about applying, uh, or, or actually we're talking about the third commandment and uh, the Ten Commandments in Real Life series. We are on our third episode of that. So you don't want to miss our Friday episode. And until then, uh, we'll see you on Friday. And remember, everyone, in all that you do, do it unto the Lord. 